LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Rob Larson, who joins us to discuss his book, Capitalism vs. Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. For years, we've been taught that capitalism is good for freedom. Dominant right-wing commentators claim that markets free us, and this view still dominates education and politics. However, in Capitalism vs. Freedom, Larson puts big business under a microscope debunking libertarian economics while demonstrating that the marketplace has its own great centres of power, which the libertarian tradition itself claims is a limit to freedom. Larson illustrates how capitalism fails both this and other concepts of human liberty, not just failing to establish a right to a share of society's production, but also leaving us subject to the power plays of political and corporate elites, which are increasingly becoming one and the same. That global economic political, social, and environmental systems are disintegrating is scarcely in doubt. Inequality is on the rise as resources are concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. Even in the West, children now born can expect to be poorer than their parents. The era of ever-increasing prosperity is coming to an end. Conventional energy sources are running out while renewables fail to plug the gap. Climate change is making vast swathes of the earth such as the Middle East, increasingly uninhabitable for millions who have two choices, move somewhere else or die. Mass migration continues to drive social conflict. Fundamentalism is resurgent. Donald Trump and Brexit are just two of the most obvious signs of cascading collapse. The kaleidoscope has been shaken. The pieces are in flux. A new world is coming. The question simply remains, what, if anything, can we do about it? Hello and welcome, Rob, and thank you for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks, Greg. My pleasure. Okay, today, Rob, we're going to talk, be talking a little bit about your latest book, Capitalism versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. Before we dive into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your career in general. Uh, yeah, right on. Well, I teach uh, economics uh, in the uh, American Northwest. I've been doing that for uh, many years now. Uh, I actually came up in uh, biology. That was my uh, undergrad work was in the hard sciences there, which did uh, shape some of the uh, contours of my thinking since then. Uh, and then I ended up getting interested in uh, uh, some concrete issues in how we distribute resources, and I ended up studying uh, economics, and that's what I've been uh, uh, teaching for these years. And uh, I do write a lot about uh, some subjects around uh, markets and capitalism and 
how they operate historically and why. Uh, so I've done a lot of uh, research and writing on environmental economics, why it is we have so many environmental problems today and how that relates to our economic system and issues around that. And, of course, in this uh, new book, looking at issues of uh, around uh, freedom and power and the way that those ideas have been uh, sort of historically understood and, again, how they relate to our economy. It's interesting that you came to economics the way that you did, actually, because there a lot of mainstream conventional economics suffers by being detached from kind of reality, you know, detached from the world out. That's very abstract. Certainly, I studied economics, not at university level, but high school level. And that's the thing that struck me was how far removed it was from what was actually happening. I mean, it didn't necessarily start out that way, but it certainly became more, has become more abstract over time. And that's one of the main problems with mainstream economics is not only does it presume that people are rational, it excludes certain things that it it needs to include and vice versa, if you see what I mean. Oh, most definitely, man. Uh, that is indeed the case. And I mean, of course, some level of abstraction is you know, important for talking about any big or especially any kind of complicated subject. And in the more successful areas like the sciences, where we predict eclipses and cure diseases, we use abstractions there and we work with so to speak, biological models or models of the solar system. But the big thing is we do eventually take that scientific step and hold the model up to reality. Can it predict an eclipse? Can we actually get a positive uh, experimental outcome that shows we were right? I would say in econ, we make a very expansive list of these yeah, sort of simplifying, abstract uh, assumptions, including, like you said, uh, rational rational behavior in humans in terms of their economic behavior but all this other stuff like no side effects from our activity no power in the marketplace which of course is closely connected to the present book and if you add up all those assumptions yeah you get a really abstract model that then crucially we don't tend to hold up i would say uh to the real thing and see if it matches see if it accurately represents the real system. And that's why we get surprised by a financial meltdown every 10 years or so. I wrote a lot about these issues in econ in my uh, very first book, Bleakonomics, uh, which you can find, and uh, sort of took on economics and its uh, limits uh, more formally there. Well, we'll get to some of those abstractions a little later on. Uh, before we really get started, perhaps we should just, for the benefit of listeners uh, who be from across the political spectrum, and just say a little something about our personal politics. Would you describe yourself politically in any of the conventional categories that are out there, or in general terms, or specific terms? I'll just say, for my part, I kind of struggle with it, because I studied politics as well, and I see, in very, very simple terms, I see the right sometimes having the right idea. So, I mean, I would go, yeah, that, that sounds logical, that's, that's what we should do in this situation. In other <clears> situations, I hear an idea coming from the left, I say, well, that sounds applicable here. That's that's what I would I would advocate. But the the closest I can get to having it uh, a political position in any conventional using any conventional terminology would be I think I'm essentially an anarchist. But again, that brings with all the baggage because people don't really understand what anarchism is as a as a political philosophy. But so that said, where where would you put yourself in all of this? Yeah, right on. Uh, well, like you said, I feel sometimes we have pretty almost simplistic terms to describe political positions and stuff. Like, to, to me, what we should be doing is looking at where there's, you know, a lot of power in the society. Where can people tell other people what to do, and do we want to accept that, or, you know, do we look at that as opposed to freedom in some way, or what? And so my tendency, yeah, is to look 
I'm, I have more affinity toward those political schools that are uh, uh, skeptical of big, powerful institutions of all kinds of types. And so, yeah, people use the term anarchist. I mean, you know, that can be useful. I always tend to gravitate more towards some of the more traditional socialist ideas uh, while also having a lot of uh, a wariness of big uh, public or government institutions, too. So people like to use the phrase like libertarian socialist or indeed anarchist, like you said. I tend to think that those sort of political areas uh, have the most to say because they're looking at our big political and our big economic and corporate and financial institutions and saying, do we want these institutions to have this much power? Here's the kinds of authority they have. What could we do to limit that power or make it more democratic or responsive or something like that? So those kind, at least that sort of political perimeter is where I find myself. Okay, so capitalism versus freedom, uh, the title of your book. We're not going to go about defining capitalism. don't think we need to do that, but people's concepts of freedom can differ greatly. And you point out early in your book, it's how you start out about different types of freedom, positive and negative and what have you. So it just in the context of the discussion we're having, what concept or concepts do you want to tag as what we mean when we're saying freedom here? Right on. Yeah. So when you dig into this, and I'll say myself, you know, I come from uh, biology and went into econ, like I said, so I'm not a uh, someone with a big philosophical background formally. But when you look at what people have, uh, like how people have described freedom and tried to analyze it, well, philosophers have been doing a lot of work on that. And so they have a few uh, ways of splitting up the concept and trying to dig into it. Uh, and one of the most traditional ways uh, that this is done is uh, by drawing a broad distinction between uh, what they call positive and negative freedom. And this goes originally back to the work of the famous uh, Rousseau-British philosopher Isaiah Berlin, but it's been used, of course, by many others since then. And it's a pretty simple distinction. Uh, negative freedom is, uh, sometimes they call it the freedom from other people. It's your freedom to sort of choose what you want to do, with your career or with your consumption choices and not having those choices dictated to you by some big institution or by somebody or by some group of people. So your freedom from the commands of other people, that's sort of a, uh, that's one of the concepts of freedom or liberty that gets discussed is that negative, as they say, freedom. And so if we uh, remove a government restriction on speech, we would say that that increases our negative freedom because now you're more free to express yourself and say what you want without government or a corporate libel case coming down on you. So that's sort of one uh, traditional view of it. The other is positive freedom, and sometimes this is described as the freedom to do different things. So if we say that a child born in a prosperous society like uh, Britain or the United States uh, if we would suggest that that child has certain rights, like a the right to uh, a share of the economy's productivity. So if we say that a child is entitled to uh, the basic means of survival if a country can afford it, or they should be free to undergo that consumption, they call that positive freedom or positive liberty. And Berlin and other figures have sort of split those categories up. And I should say a number of people are kind of skeptical of that distinction. I myself think it's just kind of handy for laying out the basic issues. And sort of the connection to uh, the book and its title, as you just said, uh, Capitalism versus Freedom, that's of course referring to one of the uh, conservative classics 
of the 20th century, right? Milton Friedman's book, Capitalism and Freedom, and secondarily, uh, Fred Hayek's book, uh, The Road to Serfdom, which many people have heard of. Those are more conservative books. They're considered to have given a lot of guidance to sort of uh, the more conservative political figures of our lifetimes, like Reagan and Thatcher and the figures since then, in their uh, sort of modern policies of reducing taxes, deregulating the economy in various ways. Uh, so that's their relevance, the way they look at these this distinction of freedom. For example, Friedman said, like, and also Hayek makes this point as well, basically what we want is negative freedom. We want to be free from government in particular, telling us what to do, dictating our choices or telling us what we can become in terms of our careers and our personal development. And that's what we want is that negative freedom. That's good. And their, their claim is that markets provide that because the private sector, you can choose where you want to work or what you want to buy. So capitalism provides this negative freedom. Their tendency is to be skeptical of positive freedom, you know, the right to or the freedom to do different things or consume things. Because their claim is that is a demand for equality and that everyone should have the same share. And, of course, that's something that, as conservatives, they're relatively antagonistic to. So the traditional claim, then, is that capitalism provides negative freedom from the government, dictates, and it doesn't provide positive freedom, but that's okay. My book's claim is it doesn't really provide either of those forms of freedom. Uh, well, there was a time around, and I lived through this, the end of the 1980s and the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and Francis Fukuyama's, what I later looked to be completely ridiculous end of history, where it seemed that there really was no alternative to capitalism and it had in fact finally triumphed and it was only a matter of time before it spread like some sort of terraforming uh, force across the rest of the earth and it would be one uh, liber libertarian capitalist sort of uh, utopia. I in fact addressed some of these issues when I spoke to your book, the current one is out on Zero Books, and there's another guy called Mark Fisher. He published a book through Zero Capitalist Realism. Is there no alternative? Very much asking some of the same questions. And I did a show around that. And, of course, it's been quite some time since those events that I just mentioned. Uh, long enough, in fact, that you now have a new generation who've uh, grown up in the, you know, the Soviet era. You know, they, they weren't alive at the time. You know, that was, it was gone already when they came into the world and of course the and it seemed that the the failures of communism and for some people socialism were self-evident at that point so we have been living now for quite a long time with the, 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 there is no alternative basically this is it this is as good as it gets it has some flaws but that now is being revealed as and whatever your perspective here if you still you know you can still be listening to this and still think that capitalism is a great system and it's the you know the least worst where we've got the fact is, I'm, I'm looking out the window when on TV at what's actually happening in the world, and there are mounting problems with this, uh, with the system that has become increasingly dominant. There's no question about that. Oh, yeah, indeed. Uh, very much so. And uh, I think that's exactly right. There are a lot of uh, younger people today uh, who certainly didn't, you know, uh, grow up during the Cold War. I mean, many of them, you know, barely recall the Soviet Union. I mean, I myself was... I think 12 when the, or 11, I should say, when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. So that's true for many people. Uh, the prospect of the Soviet Union hasn't really been available to discourage them from thinking beyond the confines of our existing political spectrum to other forms of social organization. I think that's pretty healthy. And, I mean, you're right, though. It has taken a generation. But, I mean, by the same token, looking at our political events these days, 
Uh, obviously, in the U.S., we have Senator Sanders, and now a lot of excitement around victories by uh, other leftist candidates like uh, Casio cortez and uh, some other figures here. And, of course, in the U.K. Uh, as well, you have Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, there are legitimately countervailing political wins now for a change. It's, for many of us, it's the first time in our lifetimes to see the left with any kind of real political momentum, but it's very exciting. And you're right. I mean, we have fairly drastic economic problems these days. I mean, now... I can tell you in America with the Trump administration, it's difficult to get people to talk about anything else. It's kind of sucked up the political oxygen, for better or worse. But prior to that, we had pr plenty of problems, despite people's tendency to forget them. We have huge environmental problems. We have major economic crises. People can't afford to live in cities anymore. When they come out of school, they have large five-figure amounts of debt that they owe just for getting their higher education uh, if you get sick or get injured in the United States, even if you're insured, it is quite, quite possible for you to be completely bankrupted uh, by that. And all these issues with our political system as well, like people not being represented, our racial minorities uh, have very legitimate grievances about how they're treated by law enforcement and by the broader economy. So we have all these issues. You can see, I think, why there's this sort of uh, uh, increasing interest in leftist politics, in addition to far right politics, too, of course. With extremes, isn't it? Uh, and when I say extremes, I don't mean that the people are necessarily extremists, but it's just that it's beyond the pale of the mainstream, that's all. Mention of uh, sort of Friedman and Hayek, etc., etc. It's not too far. You go down that route, so you get to the Austrian School of Economics. We don't need to go into exactly what that is now. Um, mm. And you then, because uh, I did reading around this, and you know, I found it actually when I first discovered it, compared to the conventional economics I'd studied, I found it quite refreshing. And it didn't take mm. me long uh, reading one book leads to another to get to the uh, anarcho-capitalist concept, and I found that very seductive. And I still, sure. still, in a sort of hypothetical, theoretical way, I still do, because it seemed to have answers to, you know, capital problems with the capitalist system that we had, and kind of, but also for the requirements of a socialist society. And, and so requirements, problems, it just seemed to be able to address these, because basically the, the, the nub of it being is that if, it, if people want something, that's what they get. And if there's money to be made at solving a problem, then somebody will solve that problem, which pro might not sound a million miles away from just capitalism in general, you know, Western so-called free market capitalism, but it is distinctly different because actually the so-called free markets uh, that people like to talk so much about, uh, mainstream commentators, are not really free at all. You know, they're full of limited choices and f fixed prices and collusion. Indeed. And, I mean, I think that's true about anarcho-capitalism. Like, there is real appeal there. And I have you know, personal friends, and I've certainly had plenty of students down the years uh, who are interested uh, in figures around that school. Uh, not so many, of course, as you get for the more conventional schools or even, I would say, more leftist ideas, but there's always interest there. And, yeah, I think you can understand it. I mean, say what you will about anarcho-capitalism. It's a relatively simple case to understand. Markets are efficient. Government's dumb and inefficient and authoritarian. Uh, we want less government and more markets. It's a nice simple, very Manichaean picture, government causes problems, markets fix them. Any imbecile can understand that idea, and it does have you know some strong intellectual figures within it, and I took pains in my book to try to include those figures. Obviously, with the title uh, of my book, I'm poking fun at the somewhat more, like you said, more mainstream uh, conservative figures, Friedman and Hayek, who you know were mainstream enough to advise Ronald Reagan and Prime Minister Thatcher. But often libertarians sort of view those figures as somewhat more compromise-oriented. 
and they're more interested in, as you said, like the uh, sort of perhaps more pure anarcho-capitalist types. So I include uh, some Austrian figures, especially uh, Ludwig von Mises, who's considered the founder of the more conservative Austrian economic school, and also some real anarcho-capitalists. And uh, in the United States, at least, one who uh, is very commonly referred to is uh, Murray Rothbard, uh, econ professor and uh, prolific writer on the right. And so I include those fellows, too, because I want libertarians to feel that I'm looking at their major figures, that I'm giving them a chance to speak. I It drives me nuts. People Across the political spectrum, people pretend they're addressing their opposing arguments, but then they just summarize the arguments themselves in the most disparaging way possible, usually. Uh, and on the right and the left, you see that. So in my book, I t- tried to take pains and let these figures speak give them plenty of room. I try to quote their strongest arguments and that includes, you know, the more conservative figures like Rothbard and they make a very, uh, it's a very compelling case as long as you don't, I think, look at any real counter arguments actually articulated by, uh, an opponent. Because if you look, markets themselves have these enormous number of requirements that they need to operate from basic civil stability to a legal commercial court system in case someone welches on a contract. You need access to foreign resources that your military often, or at least your state or foreign ministry, is required to hang on to. So most social systems, if we look at them of any complexity, need a strong base of ordered civil interactions, whether it's a any kind of economic system we want to look at past the hunter-gatherer stage. So it's true of socialism and it's true of markets. And your latter point there about free markets often not being free, well, that is indeed what my book tries to lay out the case for, that there are very common circumstances that arise more or less naturally within markets that are impossible to describe as free using either the negative or positive conceptualizations of freedom. And the first chapter of my book tries to make that case. Where are markets unfree? Well, kind of the basic view, like uh, Friedman says in his uh, book, is that they're most interested in that negative view of freedom, right? You're free from the power plays of some institution telling you what to do. Well, within markets, that's just every day. (laughs) Uh, We have huge concentrations of wealth to the extent that we're not progressively taxing the rich, their fortunes build up quite quickly, mostly through their ownership of equity. You know, they're the ones, those wealthy households, the so-called 1%, they're the ones that own the stock. You know, they own the equity. They own the corporate and financial worlds. When those companies make huge profits, you know, most of us don't see much of that money. It goes to who holds the stock, and that's disproportionately the very wealthiest households. That leaves those people with a lot of social power, And also within markets themselves, the very markets that the conservative tradition, I think, at times fetishizes, it's filled with power interactions. We have so many markets that very quickly, if they're not regulated by government to prevent this, become monopolized. I mean, the U.S. is sort of the classic case. We always think of it as being the most, you know, free for business, the most capitalist society. In the Gilded Age, very quickly, when the U.S. went through its Industrial Revolution, the outcome was huge monopolies. Rockefeller's oil monopoly, Carnegie's steel monopoly, monopolies in cigarettes and sophisticated appliances, Morgan's Wall Street cartel. And today, it's even more dramatic. I mean, our, our rising new economic sector, of course, is big tech, right? The Silicon Valley, as they say, the big tech firms. Those firms are, I mean, The Economist magazine, you know, in the UK, that's one of the most conservative, you know, 
economics oriented magazines, they describe some of these new tech industries as being, and I quote, out of the box monopolies because of reasons related to the economics of those markets. They're based on networks. They connect people or businesses, whether it's Facebook or Amazon's you know, uh, third-party sellers or Google's search listings. Those, those uh, entities, are, they grow because people want to connect. They are attracted to the service that has the most members. We call those network effects in economics. Those markets are uniquely prone to becoming monopolized very quickly as the economist correctly observed for all its conservatism they were willing to recognize that so what all this means i would suggest is that markets are filled with power power interactions and that means by the basic definition of negative freedom that they they fail to satisfy that when you go to work and your boss tells you what to do and you go okay that's markets exhibiting forms of real social power and we can ignore that as the right-wing tradition has done but that's, I think, got a lot to do with why we have these uprisings at the different ends of the political spectrum. And my book tries to make the case that these are the failures of capitalism. We're not really upholding any of these uh, aspects of freedom, uh, despite what the anarcho-capitalists might suggest. You mentioned the era of the big uh, sort of industrialists, um, you know, Carnegie's and Rockefeller's and what have you, and how they came to dominate. But then things were apparently getting more distributed and democratic after that, technology facilitated a lot of that. You know, anybody in their garage or their spare room could start up a business, as some of these tech companies did, and mm. rise to the top through merit. Of course, there are barriers to entry even in <clears throat> so-called free market. And it's not just cost. It's like if you and I decide to uh, to start a, a search engine company or a uh, you know an online marketplace like Amazon, uh, we can go ahead and do that, but it's not just the cost that we would struggle to compete with them on. You then get, I mentioned earlier, um, uh, collusion. You then get companies operating together for their own kind of mutual benefit. Like I don't think old-fashioned cartel would have done to try and keep other people out. And government can get sucked into this with regulations. For example, if you and I, if we want to start up the, the Bank of Robin Gregg, we're going to have a lot of trouble with uh, trying to comply with regulation. You're trying to get even to get started with that. You know, we can't just start. We can't just start a bank. These barriers to entry become very, very significant. And we, of course, you've talked about monopolies. So again, the free markets are not really free. We'll go on in a minute to talk about the implications of this. But it's we can start up. Uh, you know, we can start up a hot dog stand. But if we want to be the next McDonald's, we're going to come across um, a lot of obstacles on the path. Most definitely. And I think all those that you just listed are good examples. So, again, Friedman and Hayek and uh, their kindred spirits will tell us that, yeah, well, we may have powerful firms, but if they ever get too big or if they start really screwing over consumers, consumers and hiking prices, well, that encourages or incentivizes other firms to enter the market and steal some of that market share by having more reasonable prices. There are barriers to entry that are extremely real really across industry sectors that discourage that. And you mentioned a couple of them, right? So one is you know, government regulation. And this is, I will point this out, out of all the barriers to entry that make it hard to get going in a industry, regardless of whether your business successfully competes in the end or not, the only one that conservatives will acknowledge and which they refer to frequently, if you look at their literature, it's government barriers. And the main one they mention, yeah, is licensing. For example, if you want to start a bank, 
Uh, in the U.S., yeah, you, yeah, like you said, you can't just start a bank. You have to get a license from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Uh, in the U.K., I'm sure it's through the Officer of the Exchequer, a similar body, right? Uh, and regulation and licensing, I mean, fair enough. Like, those make it harder to start a business. They increase the costs, and they create a regulatory burden of the attention of the business person. That's fair. But within the marketplace, you have all these other barriers. Like, we mentioned a couple of them, right? Right. In the case of the Silicon Valley firms, we have the network effects. So if I want to start up, like you said, if we start a, uh, a new online platform to compete with an online retailer like Amazon or another uh, sort of business wherever we might want to compete, I mean, first we have to consider the fact that once you have a large dominant firm, they gain real advantages that constitute barriers to entry. And I mean, they don't have to keep us out completely like any physical barrier. The goal is just to make it harder and increase costs. So with Amazon, it's going to be very difficult because they have, besides obvious things like relations with suppliers and a well-established brand name and consumer trust, they've got a lot of market power. Uh, I've been writing about this just lately. Amazon has a extensive history, and it's all on the record, too. None of it is secret. There is a long history there when a firm doing online retail or related businesses where they compete with Amazon, once they become successful enough that Amazon notices them, it's how many ways can they find to crush that business. And it's example after example. The main thing is because they have the strong network effect of the third-party seller platform that makes it a magnet for businesses and consumers, they can afford to lose money in the course of underpricing and crushing a new rival. They did that with Zappos, the shoe delivery firm that they eventually forced them forced into uh, being purchased. They did it with diapers.com, and they're happy to lose money on this because they're huge. They can afford to burn through some cash. They'll definitely outlast some startup, you know. So beyond passive barriers to entry, like the economies of scale that make it impossible to compete with Rockefeller's oil monopoly or the network effects that make it impossible to compete with Facebook, these firms have power, and they actively go after small rivals. If you're lucky, they'll offer to buy you for what is pocket change for them, you know, a couple million bucks. Uh, if you last against that, they will find ways to crush you. In large firms, they've got tools for that purpose. And sometimes it means real collusion. I mean, often, though, it's just action in the marketplace. If I underprice you and you go out of business and then I buy up your inventory and take your market share, there's typically nothing outwardly illegal out, uh, involved in that in terms of you know, European competition law or certainly antitrust law in the U.S., which is very narrowly drawn. So these are the kinds of levers of power that I think you see in the marketplace. And again, it makes it just harder to claim, if you're intellectually honest, that these markets are perpetuating freedom. I mean, look at the barriers to entry, look at the monopolies we end up with, and oligopolies with just a tiny handful of big firms. There's a legitimate argument that conservatives need to answer here, and the thing is they don't. They argue against straw men of leftist arguments that they create without quoting anybody. Uh, there's just a lot of intellectual opportunism there, I think. Well, what you described about how Amazon has operated in the past doesn't maybe sound so bad on the face of it. You know, nobody die, uh, as you say, just actions, <laughs> you know, actions in the marketplace. But if we think back to the uh, financial crash, 2007, 2008, we then had the phenomenon of the banks and other financial institutions being so-called too big to fail. And we saw, you know, government bailouts and effectively profits being privatized in these situations. But then the losses kind of nationalized or socialized or however you wish to put it. And that 
uh, is another example of what I spoke about earlier, you know, about sort of corporate and political crossover. Not maybe always as obvious as the revolving door between Wall Street and uh, the White House or the U.S. administration, but you get this, mm. you get this collusion at that level, and co- this is another way that these that enormous companies have a great deal of power. Uh, now, increasingly, there is, or I should say, there's decreasing demand for labor, but if a lot of other things are at stake, then this political consideration comes into play. Even with the best one in the world, there'd be a lot of politicians who would look at the potential for a big bank going under and forget about all the structural and systemic problems that might cause. If it meant thousands of job losses or a uh, financial hit for lots of individuals who had uh, money deposited with, say, for example, a bank, then you can see why they might want to do something there. But then, of course, banks and financial institutions and indeed other companies can use this as leverage, if not blackmail, when it comes to getting their way. Most definitely. That is uh, certainly the case. And I mean, I mean that that's right. When you have large economic institutions, like, you know, I'm like I'm suggesting here, I don't have a huge amount of love for our current system of economic organization, but I don't want to see the major U.S. and European banks go bankrupt tomorrow. Like that's going to create you know terrible social and economic problems. That's you know what we came close to in 2008, ten years ago. Like that's you can you're right. You can see the legitimate incentive that policymakers have to keep those institutions from just going under, and the sudden you know, uh, collapse of any ability to get any short-term credit for any employer or business. Like, that's a le- it's legitimate to say there's action needs to be taken when our huge institutions borrow too much and make bad debts and begin to go bankrupt again. And I'm sure we'll be revisiting this again before we know it. So it is probably a legitimate subject for us to be looking at. But at the same time, I think, again, the proof's in the pudding, though, like in the U.S. again, because I know the most about that case, although Britain's history after the crash is fascinating, too. In the U.S., we, as you said, we bailed out these institutions. It actually took two tries because the House voted down uh, the first time and much to the shock of the markets. But once that bailout went through, and especially the far bigger efforts of the Federal Reserve to step in and do emergency lending that the banks wouldn't do and to do other uh, – emergency credit lines and so on to keep our banks from going under in uh, the European Union and uh, the U.S., those actions were for the firms. If you look at what action or support was extended to regular working people during that, and especially remembering that that crisis kicked off our worst economic recession since the 30s, since the Great Depression itself, you know, we had more unemployment spending because that happens automatically through our unemployment insurance system. You have very modest efforts at helping uh, homeowners losing their homes in the housing crash compared to the literally trillions of dollars, though, that, as you say, went to bail out Wall Street. It's, I mean, you know, it's less than pennies on the dollar. And I think what that speaks to is, and I talk about this in Chapter 3 of the book, of course, when you have this kind of power and it's just so much at stake in the success or failure of these gigantic firms, whether it's a real monopoly like Facebook or an oligopoly like, say, Wall Street, uh, there's so much at stake. It's legitimate that government has some, you know, they they have a legitimate interest in keeping those firms from collapsing. But as the lasting political bitterness against those bailout shows, that doesn't mean they should just get a blank check as their uh, recovery package, which is essentially what happened in the U.S. There should be real ramifications in 19. 19- 29, we had a financial panic leading to our huge collapse. Over the 30s in the New Deal period, we broke those banks up. We separated the commercial and investment banks. 
so that if one of them has a crisis, it doesn't you know, lead to a huge spreading contagion, and especially something people don't remember, which I like to point out, in the U.S., with our huge economy, we broke the commercial banks up by state lines. So if you had a bank headquartered in New York, you could open up a branch in upstate New York, but not in New Jersey and not in any other state, and it just puts some ceiling on how big those banking institutions could get. And what that means is, exactly, they remove their ability to have any kind of blackmail aspect to this which is a legitimate part of this. If you look at the, finance, the detailed history of the finance crisis, it's kind of a dance because the banks are afraid that the crashes, that the, their losses from the housing crash might bankrupt them, but also they want as much free cash as they can get, even if temporarily from the state, because they can turn that around and make zero-cost funds. Even in a recession, they can make some profit on that. So... But at the same time, some of them are on the edge of bankruptcy. It's kind of hard to tell which is which because of the the size and complexity of these institutions. These are the inevitable outcomes of a deregulated marketplace. When we take antitrust and competition laws off, firms merge. We think they're going to compete more, and they do in the form of merging and becoming huge. And the, the obvious ramification of that is when these firms agglomerate and become giant conglomerates, then, yeah, the stakes are just that much higher should anything go wrong. In the U.S., I mean, among my students even, I have them all the time saying, why should, why do we bail out these big banks? And Trump and Sanders supporters alike are still angry about it. Why do we bail out these banks? Companies go bankrupt all the time. Why didn't we let them go bankrupt? Well, people misunderstand what too big to fail means. It doesn't mean too big to be able to fail, right? It means too big that we too big to be allowed to fail if they collapse, as we saw in 2008, just with Lehman Brothers and a few other firms crashing, it seized up the marketplace. The Federal Reserve had to step in and do all the daily, just day-to-day commercial lending to businesses, and they fought to avoid releasing who they were doing their emergency lending to until a couple of congressmen, including a then-freshman senator named Bernie Sanders, they forced the Fed to come out with it, and it's the Fortune 500. It's every giant American corporation, Harley-Davidson, McDonald's, Caterpillar, Verizon, are huge firms. These are companies that have day-to-day borrowing and capitalization needs that when the finance crisis came, they suddenly could not meet because the markets all seized up in that famous set of events. It's the Federal Reserve that stepped in and did that. These are the stakes when you deregulate the economy, and if conservatives don't like that, that's fine. They should just realize that in the New Deal era in the U.S., we never had a financial crisis because of the tight, relatively tight mesh of government regulations those institutions were in. So I think the too-big-to-fail episodes are a perfect example of what we get into with issues of power in the marketplace. Well, there's an argument, of course, that too-big-to-fail should really mean then too-big-to-exist. After the – you talk about – we might we could be discussing this again in a few years from now, you know, i.e. the financial crisis. There's the whole <laughs> the whole so-called economic cycle that of boom and bust is also accepted. You know, something completely bizarre should be unacceptable, but it's accepted as kind of normal. It's just part of it. It's just the way these things go. But that's insane. I mean, if you had a cycle of boom and bust like that in your in your home finances, your family finances, you'd, you'd realize something was badly wrong. Um, but these banks should know after that last blow up, it should have been like okay, we've lent you money, we've bailed you out, we've done this, next time you will get a nosebleed. You will take Indeed. You will take the hit for this. Just know that right now. We're going to be telling you that from day one. So bear it in mind and make that very, very public. 
So everybody knows that's the case. But to move on a little bit, you mentioned about market concentration. And in terms of, uh, you know, as you say, companies will just merge. That's what happens. And economies of scale we spoke about earlier, there's very good reasons why they would merge, access to other markets, etc., etc. But let's talk about the media. This has an interesting overlap with the political dimension here. Been in the news lots, particularly since the advent of the internet, media companies concentrating, buying each other, merging. Uh, there's structural reasons for that, again, to do with the internet. But in general, our information and news is coming from fewer and fewer sources and is concentrated in fewer hands. This then has uh, another dimension in terms of we're influenced by this information and news coming out. But if it's coming from fewer sources, then we're more subject or more susceptible to what's effectively propaganda. You know, it's easier to control uh, the information that's going out there if you've got less people feeding that information in. So hmm. it's more centralized. So that's got very real effects. And that affects the political process, which in turn affects business because of the regulation. So there's this kind of a vicious circle at work there. Oh, indeed. And uh, yeah, I think that's typical of a political moment is there tends to be some self-reinforcing dynamic to it, like you say. But uh, this, of course, is one of the crucial subjects uh, because, uh, again, uh, supporters of free markets uh, will very reliably make a case that one reason you don't want big government regulating markets is that they'll try to control information. And we don't want that. And so uh, Frederick Hayek, one of his famous uh, or one of his, you know, his most famous uh, contributions to formal economics was uh, a series of articles he wrote, including a very prominent one for the American Economic Review, where he argued that markets, in line with his general view that markets are these natural phenomenon, that men don't create markets, markets are things that are created through the social functioning and through the incentives that people have economically. Uh, he made this very elaborate case that markets are um, I mean, this is from memory. I quote him, of course, in the book. Uh, but he said uh, something along the lines that markets are the greatest mechanism for transmitting information in history. And he claims that they weren't created by people. They're created by the overall action in the marketplace. So if there is a decrease in the availability of some resource, we consumers will learn about that in the form of higher prices for products made from that resource. So we don't have to be constantly looking at the prices for every different thing we'll see the basic information in the forms of the prices that we actually consume. And he has a very extensive formal argument to make this case, and I can tell you any economics textbook in the Western world is going to have a version of that argument about how markets freely and efficiently transmit accurate information by aggregating them into prices through market action. And that's a classic argument, and again, I give them plenty of space to make that argument in my book. The issue is that it's a complete crap. There's a ludicrous claim as soon as you have concentration in markets, like you're referring to, the very first thing that happens is that firms start gaining some pull. They get a little bit of influence or a little more, we could say, bargaining power within the marketplace. The first thing that means is that it affects prices. If you're selling, you know, uh, steel to some, if you were a steel company and you're selling steel to different firms, you, you just the prices that you charge represent the costs that you face for the basic iron and other inputs like energy and labor and your own markup for your firm's profit. And that's supposed to represent that information there. Well, if I'm selling uh, that steel to a couple small construction firms in different countries, excuse me, in different cities, 
then that's going to represent some real market information there. But if I want to sell steel to a big firm, like let's say uh, Toyota or you know another big manufacturer comes to me and says, we want to buy so many hundred tons of steel from you over so many years, we're going to haggle over that price. And Toyota or whatever big firm it is will naturally expect to get the nice price because we're buying so much from you and we're such a big account. It could mean a lot of business with us down the line. You, the steel manufacturer, have a real incentive to bargain with them and give them a slightly, at least some sort of price break or some other generous terms. That's the most natural thing that happens in the business world. And if you read the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times in the UK, every day it's stories about these firms haggling and coming out with prices. That is the opposite of what Hayek says happens in markets, because, of course, he speaks about them all as if they're all the same. And so what that means is how much information we get from markets in terms of their pricing, which is supposed to be what gives us all of our free information, it completely depends on how concentrated the markets are. And since so many of our markets have big firms, very concentrated markets with a lot of market share, sometimes with big firms on both ends of the transaction, if it's you know a global steel firm selling that product to a global manufacturer, they will have extensive arm wrestling negotiations about the price. And however the price ends up, what it won't do is reflect relative scarcity of the basic materials and labor involved. So there's a lot of issues there as far as the basic view. But sort of what you were getting into with that in terms of our information about what's going on in the world more broadly, that, of course, is one of the most sensitive aspects about how markets work. We tend to be, you know, even among conservatives, people are a little more leery of mergers and big combinations of companies if they sell information products rather than physical material goods. And that's true really across the board, but it's an issue, again, that you won't see Friedman and Hayek take seriously. And again, I've read their books. People should read them. They don't engage with that issue seriously. They say, here's this nice view of markets. They're efficient. We should deregulate them because government creates these inefficiencies. And if government regulates media, well, then they're dictating media content. That's not free. Rupert Murdoch should decide what information you see. And I mean, right now is... I mean, this current era we're living in, man, is the, the perfect time to see it. Like right now in the UK, it's a bidding war over those sky assets, important media assets that people view and read all the time. Well, what's the bidding war? Well, Rupert Murdoch's deciding whether he wants to sell to Disney or Comcast uh, or to Fox, maybe. And uh, this is the big thing you read about the Wall Street Journal every day. And, of course, the regulators have a major role in this. But if they weren't present, it would just be Rupert Murdoch's Australian billionaire decision. Who's going to control your news tomorrow? I mean, of course, that's such a hugely crucial issue. And I would say the left on this has a much better record. You know, uh, take a classic you know, UK figure like George Orwell. I mean, he has a lot to say about this. People remember his work for criticizing thought control in the Soviet bloc in 1984 and Animal Farm. Those are books about how totalitarianism controls thought, and everyone's familiar with those ideas. And Big Brother all come out of that. If you look at what he wrote about Britain and the Western world, it's not flattering. <laughs> it is you didn't, He did not write in support of a market-based information system. He discusses how freedom of the press is freedom for those wealthy enough to own a press and how at any time there are all kinds of realities involving your country's foreign policy, 
or how what markets are doing to people in your own country, that those firms do not have an incentive to report because their business model, since the earliest days of commercial printing in Britain and then around the world, it's their business model is support through advertisers. And that generally means other institutions with money that want to meet people, and that tends to mean other businesses. Well, you don't make money for your private business paper by criticizing other powerful institutions because there goes your advertising dollar-based business model. And George Orwell has commented on that, as have many others. So I think there are very legitimate reasons for seeing those markets as being especially damning failures of how the conservative tradition tends to view markets and information. I look at this in chapter two of the book, and people should take a look at that and look at these arguments on both sides. I let Hayek and Orwell both come in and talk. I think that's the right you know, way to really sit down and get a grip on these ideas. But you're right. I mean, that is obviously one of the most sensitive areas to this, but I think it really, it really does show uh, that our information system, it's based on what firms in the end, want us to hear. And it's amazing, too, because certainly in the U.S., and I know also in Britain, the tendency is to talk about the liberal media and these liberal leftists that you know, uh, are feeding everybody leftist ideas, and that's why everyone's not a far-right conservative. These are giant corporations. They want conservative tax policy. They want conservative deregulation. They may be liberal on social issues, like not you know, discriminating against gay people and so on, Obviously, I think is great. But that doesn't make them liberal entities. Like big, wealthy, powerful institutions tend not to want to be taxed or regulated, which is the traditional liberal, as we say, uh, sort of position. And right now we're living through uh, a new era of media consolidation because, as you said, of the rise of these online news portals. And people get their news for free through you know, a Facebook link or on Twitter or on Google, and there's a lot of discussion of how are the traditional media going to sustain their business models because they're losing advertiser attention and their subscription numbers have plummeted since they can people can read so much content for free online. Right now, those firms are going through a new wave of mergers and acquisitions, and it looks like AT&T is going to be able to buy, for example, uh, Time Warner assets here in the U.S. The main thing they point to in justifying this merger wave is, holy crap, look at the rising power of Silicon Valley and the tech industry. So whenever there's disruption, the first response of these capitalists is we should merge more and further limit the range of opinions that people you know, will see and further limit how much real journalism is being done. And look, I read articles on Facebook all the time, but most of the time when you read online media, it's referring to or relying directly on the journalism from those traditional media, which are starving for ad dollars now, it's just a mess. Like there's nothing about this picture that suggests that markets, as we free them more and more through deregulation, there's nothing about this that suggests that they're providing real freedom of, of information. I'm amazed that conservatives can still make this argument with a straight face. Well, hey, I mean, backing up what I said about my worldview earlier, I don't want to be taxed. I don't want to be regulated. Um, mm. My ideal world is no taxes, no regulation, you know. But what we're in our different ways simply saying here is that if you have tax, taxes and regulations, or if you don't have them, or some combination thereof, there are consequences. Things happen or don't happen. That's all, really. Mm. And just looking at some of that. Over the years doing these shows, I've coming at it from all different perspectives and many very different subjects. I've kind of commented on how 
way things are going in the world sort of increasingly resemble a lot of the dystopian science fiction from the 60s and 70s that I used to read during the 1980s, and it's kind of like, oh, wow, really? (laughs) And um, in the context of some of the things that we've been saying about corporate power and uh, the influence over the political process and over information and uh, the various things that we've covered, the various points so far, more and more the world looks to be heading in some sort of... The simplest way I could sum it up is kind of like like some sort of Blade Runner-type scenario, you know? (laughs) It's not not a Mad Max type scenario, but a Blade Runner one where there's still lots of skyscrapers, you know, and neon signs, and, but everything's kind of just a bit messed up for the guy in the street. And there's a lot of guys sitting, well, increasingly small number of guys sitting on the hundredth floor of these uh, skyscrapers, gold leaf in their cigars or whatever, and, you know, drinking fine wines and eating sweet meats or whatever. And... <laughs> I was actually reminded when I was reading your book of, uh, in terms of uh, market concentration, uh, there was a film that came out in 1975. They did a remake, but forget that, it's terrible. A film that came out in 1975 with James Caan called Rollerball. And if if people, even from an economic point of view, if people want a vision of the future, they should check that out because it's basically a corporate state. In the film, you have these... uh, It's not the main theme of the film, but it's the background. You have these monolithic corporate monopolies, and they've just just got one-word names now. Uh, There's one called energy. There's one called transport. One called food. One called (laughs) communication. One called luxury. And it's basically... There's been so much market concentration that you now just have. It's a for-profit corporation. For example, let's take energy. For-profit corporation, but there's no competition anymore. So it's a weird kind of capitalism where there's just one provider, <laughs> if you see what I mean. So it's for profit, one provider. And uh, that, that just when I was projecting into the future about where some of these developments might go, I just thought, yeah, I've seen this somewhere before. <laughs> it's true. And I mean, sci-fi dystopian writing is obviously going through a major renaissance these days, they say. And I think you can see what it is about our modern society that suggests that we have a lot of apocalyptic level environmental problems, these giant social issues and rising power of institutions, you know, like these large transnational corporations. Uh, I think you could see why people are interested (laughs) in some of this dystopian writing is true. And I admit, I haven't seen Rollerball. And it's funny, I just had someone else recommend the original version of the film to me. So uh, I've definitely got to make some uh, time for it. But uh like, that's interesting. Yeah, like energy or transport. That's funny. Like, uh, firms just openly embracing, it sounds like, in that film's universe, uh, their total monopoly. Again, we do have a long history with this in most of the Western world. Uh, either markets, when they're not regulated, just simply merge and combine and predate their way into full monopoly. Or these days, often governments will actively support a what they call national champions sometimes and support uh, firms emerging and becoming larger, having at least no with domestic competition. Uh, it's interesting, but either way, whether it's through public action or through just straight market concentration, monopolization is this extremely strong economic tendency. And I mean, even to this day, so, you know, we look at kind of the classic industrial era like Rockefeller or the sound of these, uh, corporations you're, uh, referring to in the film. You know, they're very sinister. It, is very much a part, again, to mention these guys again, because I'm writing about them these days, the tech firms, this tendency for a monopoly is 
utterly alive within them. And one example I like to use is Bill Gates, because everyone loves Bill Gates these days. You know, now he's our second richest man, I guess, globally uh, famous these days for his uh, Gates Foundation, right? This very large, multi-billion-dollar endowment foundation, and it uses that money to uh, you know, support charitable causes around the world that it decides to support. So fighting disease in the developing world and spending money on education and so on. That money comes from Bill Gates's original fortune, mostly from the 1980s and 90s, back when his company, Microsoft, had a monopoly, a worldwide monopoly on computer operating system software. And these days we're all on mobile devices, and even there, though, we're basically looking at a duopoly with Google's Android operating system and, of course, Apple's iOS for its uh, iPhones. But those firms have maintained a lot of power, and Gates, I like, is an example because everyone now has this grandfatherly affection toward him. And people, when they feel, like you said, this dystopian feel of today, they'll refer to Gates as one of the things that's good about it. People need to remember where that money comes from. When Gates, because of the network effects involved, people, when they write software programs to make computers uh, useful, whether it's a desktop or a smartphone, developers write software to run on operating systems that are widely used. Of course, you want the largest number of people possible to use your game or your software program, whatever it does. Well, that means the biggest firms have the strongest advantage. And in the 1990s, Bill Gates, even according to his most sympathetic biographers, was a very aggressive monopolist in the sense that whenever there was any competition for some kind of software, you know, uh, database management from Oracle or security software from Cisco or network software from Novell, whichever it was, Gates, and again, his friendly biographers describe him doing this many times, saying, we've got to crush whichever company it is, and slamming his fist into his hand, saying it. That's a monopolist. <laughs> it's not that they're... You know, these conservative figures, these anarcho-capitalists like Rothbard, think that there is this may-the-best-man-win ethos within the marketplace. There isn't. The tendency is for these guys, they become rich and powerful just by growing quickly, and then their attitude is whenever there's competition against them, they see it as like a personal affront. And their tendency, certainly with Rockefeller, but again today with Gates, uh, the tendency is to be what they sometimes call predatory. And, oh, a competitor, how can we crush them? Jeff Bezos at Amazon, we mentioned a couple of cases of that. Certainly true of Gates and Steve Jobs at Apple. And all through the history of capitalism, it's a very common drive among these powerful figures that we later celebrate. And after all, Gates, once he had all that money from his monopoly and successfully crushing his competitors, as he said, he put that money into that foundation during his monopoly trial because he was quickly shown to have lied to the during his deposition during the antitrust trial because they would show his emails, which they subpoenaed, saying the opposite of what he told the uh, prosecutors. He was looking like crap in the press. And so uh, the, the, the papers at the time were saying, Wow, Gates is putting a lot of money into his foundation right now, probably because his name looks like shit in the press. And once that trial is over and Microsoft basically gets away with keeping his monopoly because the Bush administration came in and decided to end the case, that's when he stopped putting money into it. We remember, we're thinking of him so fondly for all this work. That foundation was created to be a fig leaf for his monopoly. 
So it's amazing to me. Maybe, uh, you know, right now these firms are cleaning up their monopoly image by supporting foundations. Maybe in the future they do, future they do it by funding Rollerball. <laughs> but either way, it uh, seems to usually happen to make these firms smell better in the public eye. Well, one of the ironic dimensions to the, the, the future vision that I laid out there with these, you know, corporate monopolies is how much in, in many ways it looks like the communist era. You know, like you think back to the Soviet Union, we started the show talking about, uh, you know, you would have, they weren't quite called energy, transport, food and communication, but you had these sort of like government entities that were yes. not meeting the, the, the requirements and the needs no. of, of, of the market. And the, the, the people's ministry of energy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But we're not saying somehow that the, uh, like a, a capitalist version of, of this monopoly functions in the same way or is dysfunctional in the same way, but it's simply that it's not, it's not, it doesn't exist to serve as its first priority the needs, the requirements, the desires of you and I, the people at the end of it all. That's not its primary purpose. Definitely not. And again, there is this huge literature on the right about how, well, this is what's chosen in the marketplace, so it, it must reflect the popular will because markets are free for all these flimsy reasons that we've decided. And they're free. And actually, I will say, uh, I don't actually remember if I got this into the book or not. I think it ended up getting cut for space. I think maybe I did include testing my memory right now. But there was a point, uh, people can find this themselves, uh, or I can send people links if they're curious. There was a passage, and um, as I recall, it's uh, Rothbard. Uh, I mean, it's just from memory. He says something along the lines of, if people feel that prices are too high in a market or they think that this market is monopolized uh, and we're seeing all this power there and that's you know a bad thing about capitalism, Rothbard makes the point that if people think that, they should start their own business and if they to compete with that gigantic, all-powerful monopolist. And if they haven't done that, then that shows that there really isn't any discontent and you leftists are just complaining. He really makes that argument that markets are free, and so if there's a monopoly, it's because people just love that company that much. That's um, Again, that's from memory. People can find the actual uh, material or I can send it to them. But that's a real view on on the right. Like if, When they're stuck with a refutation of their views because markets – so frequently don't stay competitive, they become monopolized or at best oligopolized with two or three gigantic firms. They'll make the case then that they'll, they'll claim that's just what people want then. It amazes me. Like that to me, that is not anywhere, that is in no way better than the intellectuals who supported the Soviet Union in its day and talked about how, you know, our Soviet system is so efficient and anyone who opposes us is a reactionary. We roll our eyes at those people for just saying whatever they had to to defend the power of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. Well, this is no better than that. This is looking at the enormous, often life-and-death power of these firms, which often control our health care and our ability to get basic needs met, and saying, oh, it's a monopoly and they screw over people. Well, people are choosing that because markets are free. That is something that the right does not blink at, for better or worse. Probably worse. <laughs> You're touching upon something there that we probably don't have time to get into another dimension of all this, which is the kind of education as a business in terms mm. of like university these university these days and also paid for intellectuals, you know, the people who pop up as talking heads from institutions and institutes and foundations and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, who, who pays for them? I often wonder. Uh, and that they then back, <laughs> back up, you know, the, the corporate position and they give it this intellectual veneer. 
Uh, indeed. And you're right. That really is a whole conversation unto itself. But the tendency, of course, in uh, the UK and the US has been to privatize education uh, in line with Reagan and Thatcher and their acolytes since then. And I mean, you know, in the U.S., it you know mainly means fewer resources for public education or for higher ed, where I work, which means we have to charge higher tuition. And also, the administration tends to see itself as being little CEOs, so they pay themselves more. And also, yeah, you're right. There's a tendency to rely more on these think tanks that get their money from these opaque sources or their money from foundations that themselves get their money from shady sources. That's a very strong tendency, too, and you're right. Uh, that's a big uh, a big dynamic unto itself. We should talk about that sometime. <laughs> One thing we must mention, though, in this context is environmental problems because we, we mentioned earlier, I'm sure in passing you, you mentioned ex- externalities, um, you know, those costs of doing business that are pushed by private capital onto usually public, you know, made made to be a public burden. Uh, For example, you know, dumping um, a pollutant into a river and then the the government or the environment agency, you know, ends up cleaning it up. That is a cost that's not been met by the business. And in many cases, if such externalities, it's not all necessarily environmental, there's many different types of externalities, like social costs, all sorts. But in many cases, if they were born by the business in question, the business would no longer be profitable. And that's oh, yeah. that's very, very significant. So we need to talk about those general costs, but also the environmental problems that are now mounting. Again, it's another kind of warning light flashing on the dashboard saying that, that business as usual cannot continue much longer. A lot of it's predicated uh, not just on uh, being able to externalize certain costs, but on an overall economic model of exponential growth, continuing growth, limitless growth, uh, which again is absolutely unsustainable. It's not going to happen, but that's not being taken into account by uh, a business cycle, an economic cycle, even a political cycle actually in terms of elections. That's all very much Mm. maybe medium term, but mostly short term. But we're starting to hit buffers now and problems are coming up, environmental and otherwise, that really are finding it very difficult to ignore and paper over the cracks. You know, it's like kind of trying to hold a uh, a beach ball underwater. <laughs> uh, indeed. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is one of the things, I, this is one of the areas I would say that's actually making people look more critically at our system than anything else, actually. I have to say, uh, just mention this briefly, like among my own students and, and other young people that uh, hear from, it's... That's one of the things that's most driving people to rethink the system. Like I'll talk to students and they'll say, well, I'm very worried about what's happening to the climate. And our, there's issues with water quality. Like in the U.S., we have cities like Flint, Michigan, where the water becomes utterly, literally unpotable, like not drinkable for a huge majority of the population for large spans of time because of our policies and our economic institutions. And the U.K. has its own extensive history with this sort of issue, of course, as the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. But it's amazing to me the students will say they're so concerned, as they should be, of course, about these environmental issues because they're the ones who will be growing up uh, with them uh, relative to us. And I'll say, and they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, our economic issues, you can't make money working jobs, and we owe huge amounts of student loan debt, and if you ever get sick, you're bankrupted. That's just how life is. But the environment, that's the real problem with capitalism. It's amazing that that's bringing so many people into skepticism of uh, the market is my point. But that's absolutely right. And in uh, one of the chapters of this book, I 
try to take up that issue and look at specifically, because again, my book's focused on freedom and how we can limit the power of big economic institutions as well as government over our lives and have more freedom of negative and positive types. There is a real connection there, I would say, between what we're doing to the environment and issues of freedom. So what I do in chapter four of my book as an example is I just take the year 2100, you know, the end of this century, because scientists, when they're projecting or trying to model what's going to happen with our environment over time, they'll often use the end of the century just as a benchmark so we can have some date to use and see what will conditions be like then. Uh, if you look through the scientific literature and just look for papers that are attempting using scientific methods as we have to project what will be happening in the natural world and in the ecosystem services that our economy relies on by the end of the century, it's a damn nightmare from the climate change issue and sea level rise and rising temperatures to what that's going to mean for food production. Availability of fresh water is another major one. Uh, if you look, and I review some of this history, or some of this uh, scientific literature just briefly in one of my book chapters, what you quickly realize is that few generations, especially around, say, century's end, which, again, is not that far away. There are people alive now who will see this, of course. They will not have any freedom to enjoy any, enjoy very many of our natural systems that we all grew up with and that we associate with just the basic nature of the world. They will not have the freedom to enjoy those things. And indeed, I think a corollary of that is that future generations will be very much trapped in dealing with the long-run environmental ramifications of what our limitless growth-based market system has wrought. And I make the case that one of the most, I think one of the most dramatic forms of power exercised by industrialists and corporate figures today is their ability to decide what future conditions will be like for future generations. And I include uh, another quote, and again, this is from memory, uh, Rex Tillerson, who, of course, now is most associated with his brief uh, period as Secretary of State for our idiot child president. Uh, before that, he was most known for being the long-running head of ExxonMobil, of course, one of our great Western energy firms, and in fact, one of the successors of Rockefeller's Standard Oil itself. And he made uh, this statement, uh, as I recall, it was to in Business Week. Again, you can look this up in the book or just Google this, actually, because this is recently. But he made the case that climate change, it's an engineering problem, he says, and we've dealt with problems in the past. We'll deal with this. So he's, he's, making, he's saying, we'll, future generations, you will cope with climate change. I've decided we're going to move forward with that by continuing to consume as much fossil fuel as we can to protect my corporation's business model now. You future generations will live with this. And if, as scientists are projecting, that means areas like the Persian Gulf or India will become literally uninhabitable outdoors during the summer months by the end of the century or earlier, that's just something we'll deal with. And so I say this point in the book, what is power? Well, if you have the power to dictate to future generations that they will live indoors or die, if that's not power... I don't know what is. And again, the, the conventional view of freedom that Friedman and Hayek like is that you know freedom is the negative freedom to be free of the power plays of other people. If this isn't a power play, then I don't know what is. 
So I think some of the most, some of history's maybe we may learn later, maybe some of history's greatest violations of freedom, maybe the actions of today's industrialists like the Koch brothers and all of our other energy firms who have decided that their short and, as you said, medium term profitability is more important than the freedom of future generations to have and access to a clean environment or even be free to go about their lives through the year. I mean, that is a fairly towering violation of human freedom, I would say. Yeah, I think as much as um, some of the dystopian sci-fi writers who were, you know, were looking at how uh, human society would map out in the coming decades, as much as they might have been maybe a bit you know, ahead of themselves, a bit premature, we're getting to a point now where a lot of these things that we've been discussing are happening and can no longer uh, be ignored. And it isn't just a matter of theoretically, well, this might happen. Even though sometimes when there's actual real world problems manifesting, conservative commentators, by that I mean not necessarily politically, but just, you know, uh, mainstream, still tend to talk theoretically about things. Oh, well, you know, if inequality rises or if the middle class were to decline, something like, you know, this is, <laughs> you know, this is something that might happen in the future. I mean, I made the point in my recorded introduction that and I know this personally from being the generation that I am and the friends who are the same age as me who have uh, children who are now entering adulthood, that they can expect all things being equal, that they will be less well off than their parents, i.e. people my age. You know, this is a, this is a real thing. So we've turned some kind, some kind of corner, uh, definitely with the environment, uh, but with lots of other things as well. And I think this is where, and you mentioned in your book, you reference the phenomena uh, that is the is Trump, Donald Trump, the election uh, of uh, Trump as U.S. president. Also, Bre- the Brexit phenomenon here in Britain, and these are for me just two of the most noticeable kind of bumps in the road or welts that have kind of you know swollen up, basically saying that all is not well. You know, something is rotten in the state of Denmark, and expect to see more of this actually, because what you saw, whether it was from the Clinton campaign and the Democrats in the US at the time uh, of the last election, or whether it was the political establishment here in Britain, ignoring upswelling of discontent from mostly working class people, that that, that sort of willful blindness has resulted in things that you or I might have said, well, that was actually quite predictable, but people are still reeling in disbelief. There are still people (laughs) on, I see it every day in flame wars on the internet, you know, in social media, people who just cannot accept that Trump has been elected. They cannot accept that Brexit has been, has gone Mm. through. And that is short sighted, but expect to see more of this. This is going to get worse, you know, long before it gets better. Indeed. Well, I mean, that's uh, it's, it's it's difficult to reach into the future there. But I think that that's what you said is exactly right. Like these things are surprising to a lot of people. Yeah, the the advent of Trump or Brexit, as you said itself, or uh, or other big surprises too that aren't all somewhat more conservative casted like those, like the rise of Corbyn and Sanders, which would have been considered inconceivable five years ago, you know, uh, during the Cameron and Obama era. Now suddenly they're major political fixtures and attracting all this surprising support. And where are all these young people not believing in capitalism anymore? All these surprises. These things are less surprising if you have your eyes open. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a big range for this. You know, Britain was shocked by the troubles from Northern Ireland in the 80s, and America was shocked by 9-11. If you're familiar with Britain and America's foreign policy, these terrible events are not that shocking. They're terrible, obviously, but 
you have an idea where they're coming from if you have your eyes on what's really happening in the marketplace and in world affairs. So to me, what this all speaks to is just the need for real understanding. Like people are willing to try to change the world and try to get away from all these disasters we're describing. And young people, especially in the West and around the world, are showing, I would say, a surprising level of willingness to commit to activism and engage in like real time-consuming struggle against these issues. But first, they have to understand. And that's the real role, I would say, of figures like Friedman and Hayek economically or the many other figures that cover up foreign policy and other issues uh, that are unflattering to uh, uh, the power centers that we live under. The role of those figures is to keep people from having antagonistic feelings or especially articulating thoughtfully antagonistic feelings toward the system. And that, of course, means exactly what you said. These things are huge shocks when they come, Trump or Brexit or Sanders and Corbyn or whatever it is. If you read outside of conventional literature, and that doesn't just mean reading your favorite niche publication, like you do need to read broadly and read uh, sources or figures that you're not completely sympathetic to, that's how you get your eyes open. And that's how people can get the real information they need if they want to struggle effectively against this stuff. Many people are willing to do that, but you have to understand. And that's where figures, I think, like Friedman and Hayek will end up being relatively infamous by the same kind of standards that we now use to condemn the intellectuals who propped up the Soviet Union or Germany in the 30s or you know the reign of terror of the Catholic Church in its era of great influence in the medieval period. Like the, every one of these eras has intellectuals or, you know, or other figures that try to make people like the system more, cover up its flaws, make it stink less. These are the figures that are really culpable here. It's because that there's this nice sounding justifications in place that people are willing to accept the system and then have to be surprised when we see its warts. So I think that makes a lot of sense, but I would just say that's the special infamy of some of these figures. Okay, Rob, well, as we uh, move into the closing section here, um, I just want to make a sort of a dual point about going forward where we, we can expect to see more stresses and strains within the system one is that the the promise of kind of the capitalist system was that uh, all the benefits of it would flow out uh, gradually throughout society and if permitted the world it's a trickle down effect given time and sufficient deregulation and uh, market freedom that mm. even in the deepest darkest reaches of india or africa or south america wherever it happens to be someday everyone would have a car in the driveway, uh, refrigerator, air conditioning, and an internet connection, for example. Economically, environmentally, as things stand, that is impossible. Not only that, the second part of this is that not just because of increasing autom- automation, but partly uh, that, that there's this declining demand for labour and a lot of industrial jobs that have been outsourced, for example, uh, has impacted greatly, particularly the US, but also Europe. Uh, even those outsourced industrial jobs, they may be automated in due course. That's going to have a huge impact, as alluded to already. But at the same time, consumerism is being pushed as much as ever, if not more than ever, in terms of like, you know, buy this, get that, and you'll be happy. And the analogy I like to use here is what happens when uh, employees of Walmart can no longer afford to shop at Walmart. So I just think there, across that spectrum of scenarios that I've kind of set out, 
we can look there perhaps for red flags coming up in the not too distant future. And it'll be interesting to see how politicians and economists and industrialists and tech giants deal with all of that. You know, how long can they have us just staring at our phones uh, (laughs) in distraction and kind of ignoring the stuff happening around us? Yeah, that's true. And that's definitely something I think of as well and that people discuss, like, are we so distracted and so well entertained by the ocean of media that we have these days? Uh, you know, are people paying enough attention to the world to do anything? Uh, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I think about that too, but I would just say like life, you know, we do still live life in the world and we have, like we were saying, we do have these events that tend to jolt everybody into putting down their phone and going, what's happening around me? Oh, something was happening while I was playing games about fruit on my phone. And we get, you know, huge global political events or shocking elections or big economic developments like financial crises or bubbles. And these things do snap people back to reality. So how far can we be, you know, uh, distracted into missing the flaws of the system or accepting them? I mean, that's a great, that's an open question. I wish I, I wish I knew, but I have to say the changes in the last few years, I feel like we're, at least in my view, I think we're beginning to see you know, real waves of, of change away from our recent economic trajectory, what they sometimes call our neoliberal economic mode uh, of deregulating, cutting taxes, leaving firms more in charge of our society. There are, there's a lot of antagonism popularly to that. There's also a lot of confusion because we have so much pro-market ideology and some very conservative ways of seeing the world. The fact is media are more conservative their businesses, they're profit-oriented, they want stable conditions, so they tend to have a more conservative cast. And that means when there's a disruptive figure, whether it's Trump or Senator Sanders or uh, Minister or uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, there's a lot of antagonism there, but people almost react positively to that because now there's so much ant- real antagonism toward commercial media now that people are willing to look at these formerly fringe figures seriously. And again, as soon as they're able to hear any of their actual policy proposals, they're surprisingly popular. People suddenly Sanders wins all these U S states and Corbyn's labor party is polling very well lately. It may end up in government soon. That's uh, those are surprising changes too. And I would say that I think it's very easy these days to be very pessimistic and look at all of our, major real problems and say there's just nothing to be done here. People are looking at their phones and we're going to go down in flames. I don't know. And I think if people want to break outside of the nice, comfortable with corporate control picture that they're getting and they can get away from the nice illusions created by figures like Friedman and Hayek, that's there's real potential for change there. How much maybe we'll find out, but I feel like first people have to understand you have to get outside that boring position and people think they're doing that when they get on their phones and read some news on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. News does have to be researched by journalists and editors, and that usually means the relatively traditional commercial media. So I would say people need to really get outside these sort of things. And I really recommend, I mean, even The Guardian in the UK is a relatively independent source for news. And in, past that, you have plenty of independent sources. In the US, we have you know, non-mainstream uh, sources of information that are extremely useful. We have Jacobin and Current Affairs and uh, Dollars and Cents for Economic News and uh, so many other really valuable information sources like FAIR and The Intercept. 
if you're willing to break out and actually get some independent news, I think there's a lot of potential positive future change coming. And I think if we actually commit a little time to reading and actually doing something like helping a progressive political campaign or uh, uh, going out and doing some, committing some time and doing some activism or at least going to demonstrations, that's how we get some positive change. And I always tell people we get so used to staring at our glowing screens alone. When you go out and work with people and actually do something and feel some solidarity, it is exhilarating, let me tell you. So that might be something for people to uh, think about. Okay, Rob. Well, just as we bring things to a close for today, just to, we can close thinking about potential solutions. Uh, this is something that I've talked about many, many times over the years. Um, I drew a couple of things to your attention recently that I'd looked at, talked to people about. One, I did a show not so long ago based on a book called The Simple Solution. That is S-I-M-P-O-L, and that's an acronym for Simultaneous Policy. And this was a serious-minded uh, attempt to think about um, economic uh, reform, uh, and, and with it, of course, political and social. Simultaneous policy being, if we recognize sacrifices that could be made, changes to the system that would benefit us all, but that nobody wants to do because they would lose out if they did it first, that mm -hmm. we need to do these things simultaneously, agree, okay, on this date, on this day, we will all do this. We will lose out here on one hand, but we will gain over here. And if we can coordinate that, then it makes it viable because it's currently like I'm reminded of the time when, uh, certainly in this country, we made the switch from unleaded, sorry, from leaded petrol to unleaded petrol. Um, mm. Initially, a lot of people, oh, leaded, unleaded petrol costs more. You've got to get your engine converted. Why should I do that? It costs, I'm not going to do that. But at some point, a tipping point was reached and now people using leaded gas in their cars. It's just for a few guys running classic cars, you know, they're too expensive to convert. It, <laughs> something happened and that all changed. So I've looked at solutions like that. And in the alternative media, which again, we haven't explicitly talked about, which is what we're both involved in in many ways. Uh, there's a lot of utopian blue sky thinking, which is talking about completely changing the, the social, uh, economic and political orientation of society. But for me, these again assume kind of just cold rationality or even warm rationality on the part of human beings. And I mm. pointed out a couple of these things to you, basically known as technocratic solutions, i.e. we base it on pure logic and science, things like the Zeitgeist movement and, the movement and the Venus Project, which I've talked about on here. I'm unsure about how any of these things can actually work, because what people seem to be saying is that the only way to do this is kind of in one go. So I just want to give you the floor and obviously you can't, you could probably talk for hours about this, but just give us some bullet points or headline thoughts or general direction that you would take things in. If someone said to you, okay, here, watch it, give us, give us, give us one sheet of A4 <laughs> and tell us yeah. where, where can we start on this project? You know, what should, what, what should we look at first? Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So there's a lot there. I think as far as what we can do, like as far as starting, what can we do near term? Well, I mean, I'm, I am one of those people who suggests we should fundamentally change our economic system and the way it works. But that's big. You know, that's a large social uh, process that any time you have a big social change, it does mean struggle. Whenever you want to have a republic instead of kings or if you want to stop having slaves, I mean, the people who benefit from and have power or privilege because of the systems, they're not going to just accept it. They're going to fight back and try and stop you. So some of these, yeah, as you said, tech utopian 
sort of uh, solutions like uh, some of the ones you were directing my attention to you know, have a lot of very beautiful aspirations in them, including particularly uh, having a sustainable future where we're not consuming more resources than the Earth can provide on an ongoing basis and not producing more pollution than it can handle. These things are very great goals, but they all just need like, and then we'll have this, and it's our perfect plan, and once we've done that, we'll have sustainability. Well, I'm sorry, but the energy industry is going to fight you on this, like they've been fighting even just the smallest measures like green taxes. So I think the first thing is to, first thing is to recognize that big social change does mean struggle. People make money and have positions of influence from existing systems in society. That means if you want to change them, you're going to have some contention there. At least. So I would mention that. Then as far as what we can do now, I mean, there's a lot of very valuable political uh, projects that are happening right now that I think could play a good role in starting us down the road toward the bigger changes that some of us like me would like to see. So in the U.S., for example, a lot of our sort of new crop of leftist politicians are trying to get us just basic universal health care or universal health insurance of the type that's been common, certainly in the U.K. through the NHS and the rest of the developed world for decades through the Medicare for All program or something related to that. That's a great start. Like that would help so many people that I know personally and around the country, you wouldn't have to constantly live in fear. If you get your leg crushed in an accident, as was in the press in the U.S. recently, the first words out of your mouth don't have to be, please don't call an ambulance, I can't afford it. Like what a dark capitalist moment that is. So that would be a valuable thing to move forward. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK has some very valuable measures involving dealing with the uh, issues of inequality that were displayed in the horrible Grenfell uh, Tower disaster. Those are valuable things to push forward. And that because those are immediate needs that respond to people's immediate feelings and aspirations, that's how you get people involved in a movement and discovering that, oh, we actually got this change to our healthcare or our building codes through because of all of us coming together and working on this, what else can we do? Like movements that get big change, like you know, limiting the power of the monarchy or getting rid of formal slavery, those things happen because large numbers of people are willing to work together and went through early small steps where they're trying to earn small reforms that made them realize, oh, we actually can accomplish things. I wonder what else we can accomplish. So being willing to work with your local political party that's doing something positive or activist groups, of course, outside of formal politics, they're doing something positive. Sometimes it feels like penny stakes, but half the time that's how people get brought into a process of activism and change, getting actually educated about the events in your economy or your society and seeing what you can do. So I think as far as how we start the process, it should be through these sort of opportunities that are available to us now. Now, as far as where we go with that, I mean, yeah, I think we should consider a something corresponding roughly to a basic vision of a socialist society where the big difference is when you go to work, you have access to the information that your boss usually has access to. And you and your coworkers use that information to decide what will you will do with your business. What will you produce? On what terms? And, of course, that means a lot – of networking with other workers and other people in industries related to yours. So you're going to need to talk to people running the industries that use your pro your company's product 
and you need to talk to the entities that you get your raw materials from. So it needs a lot of free association, and it's going to mean having representatives that you feel that you can trust from your workforce and who you can recall if they're not doing a good job or if they're not listening to the will of the workforce. That's kind of a classic sort of socialist vision, and obviously there would be a lot of difficulties figuring out how to make that work. I think our modern telecom technology could help a lot with that. And, of course, what we should have, and I talk about this in the last chapter of my book, is an attitude of healthy experimentation. None of us is going to perfectly guess what future forms of social organization would be best. We're going to have to have an attitude of tinkering and fiddling around and saying, okay, this worked, okay, this didn't work so good. And this is a scary prospect, of course, because we're talking about the economy. Like, we rely on the economic system to keep us alive. We need it to produce food and other goods and to provide enough employment for us to be able to afford those things. But the same argument could have been made against changing a system of slavery, which Britain and America both eventually moved past. And that meant some disruption, but it also meant a society that has a lot more basic dignity as far as human rights. So this is the kind of broader sort of longer-term vision we should be moving toward, I think. I think that would mean one where Wall Street – and the city of London aren't, or Silicon Valley aren't dictating to us what our economic options are and what our ability to, you know, and what options we'll have as far as what we can do with our careers and the kind of people we'll become. We shouldn't let them dictate that stuff to us. We should work together through some sort of democratic, collaborative, I would say socialist process to decide that stuff. And I think if we work together, get some basic victories, as far as preserving or gaining universal health care and related issues like putting at least some basic issues measures in place to protect the environment where we're just completely running wild with disregard right now. Those are the steps that I think can take us down that road. And that's, I think, at least the basic sort of thing I'd like to say. Well, just a closing thought from myself. There's a subsection in your book, I think, titled... Um, no man is an island, but he can buy one, something like that. <laughs> and we've been talking about sci-fi dystopias, and it's easy to envision a sort of something like the movie Elysium, uh, where the elite Indeed. end up living off-world. But living off-world is not an option. There's not going to be an option anytime soon. And I think going forward, I've been I've talked a lot about pressure points and you know signs of you know cracks appearing in the system and how that might manifest and what the results might be. If we think of society as a sort of a pyramid, you know, with the uh, corporate political elite at the top and mm. the, the lowest of the low at the bottom making up the bulk, um, I think somewhere in the middle there, in the lower half perhaps, you have enforcers, you know, agencies, individuals that basically do the bidding of those above them to controlling, managing, corralling those below. And that, that's a very narrow band, actually, what I call the enforcers. And I think at some point if they... It could be police, for example, but it could be all sorts of other agencies and uh, at, at, at somewhat different levels. But when they think it's no longer worth their while to do their job and mm. they walk away, then I think that those are things to look for in future. And that doesn't have to be very dramatic or violent or anything, but it can just be some people who are propping some of these entities, some of these systems up. Say, That's it. I'm done. It's no longer a benefit to me and my family to do this, then those above then have to change or be accountable or to go. Indeed. And that's, yeah, I, I think that's something to be, certainly to be hoped for is that people will feel like they uh, will respond to that feeling. Yeah. That they're not 
living their fulfilling lives or leaving a legacy that they feel comfortable with. I mean, that is the hope. I, I hope to see more of that too. And I would only hope that people do it. Yeah. In an attitude of finding a better form of social organization rather than like you do see with some people just shutting off and withdrawing from society broadly and looking only at our nice glowing screens alone in our apartments. <laughs> so the manner in which that happens, I think will, will uh, could play a big role, but that is something that, yeah, maybe we'll see. Yes, no, that's a very good point actually you make there, the manner in which people would do something like that, because just disengagement, which we're seeing a lot of now, is not going to get us anywhere, really. It just it stops things in its tracks or changes direction, but not generally for the better. So, okay, Rob, today we've been talking about your latest book, uh, Capitalism versus Freedom, uh, The Toll Road to Serfdom. That's out now, available everywhere. We also mentioned your other book, Bleakonomics, that's still available. So is there, have you got a website you might like to share with listeners or anything at all you'd like to put out there? Perhaps there's something you're working on? Mm, oh, certainly, yeah. Uh, uh, as far as uh, keeping up with my work, if uh, folks are interested, may I uh, plug my uh, Twitter feed? That's at uh, uh, IronicProfessor is my uh, Twitter handle. And uh, right now I'm working on a couple of nice pieces here. Um, working on an article about how uh, the wealthiest households live and how they spend their money, and it's a kind of hilarious aspect. That's going to be in, uh, I believe, the next issue of Current Affairs magazine, uh, which I really encourage people to check out. It's a incredibly valuable uh, magazine because it's on the left, but it's actually fun to read. It's actually entertaining and fun and playful, which I try to achieve with my own writing and which no one on the left apparently gives a damn about, but <laughs> they should. So that's something I would uh, tell folks to take a look at. Uh, Additionally, right now I do have a sec- uh, an additional book I'm working on about the uh, large tech firms that I've been referring to so much. Maybe I'm tipping my hand there. Uh, with Silicon Valley and the big tech industry sort of rising and becoming, I think, uh, co-dominant with finance uh, as the most dominant sectors of our capitalist economy. Uh, I'm writing a book about those characters right now uh, for Haymarket Books that I hope to have uh, out on the market, hopefully by uh, next summer. <laughs> we'll see if we can uh, get it done in time. But that'll be uh, coming out as well and something folks should be uh, paying attention to as well. Wonderful. Well, Rob, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks a lot, Greg. My pleasure. <laughs>